as I already mentioned, we're going to talk about the big ideas of exile and exodus. Because these are dominant themes that drive literally the rest of the Bible. Beginning in the book of Exodus chapter 1, exile and exodus will be the story of the Bible from beginning to end after this. All right? Now we could take it and we go all the way back to Genesis and we could see that moment when, when God curses Adam and Eve and He casts them outside of the garden. He exiles them. And the whole story of humanities, the whole story of humanity in the Bible is God restoring man to the paradise of His presence. You could read the Bible that way and you would not be wrong. But the idea of the Exodus really comes out of the book of Exodus, that's actually why it's called that. I know it's crazy, but you know that's how it works. Um, and um, it really comes out of what we talked about, this narrative that we discussed uh, just a few minutes ago. And I'm not going to spend too, too much time, uh, again, because we've already done this, but uh, this, there's this moment in the, the book of Exodus when things just could not get any worse for the people of Israel. Like I said, they're... They're slaves, a new pharaoh rises. He, he's a, um, and there is a moment in chapter 1 and verse 15 of Exodus when the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, in other words, the women responsible for birthing the children of the sons of Israel, the, the women that went around and, um, and they made sure that wives had healthy children, they did all of that, uh, you know, if the baby's in the wrong position, they're manipulating them inside your belly and all that crazy stuff um, that people did before modern medicine and still managed to keep having kids, so uh, they they seem to have handled it. Um, But in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Now I love this explanation, by the way. This is one of the, the most amazing, um, one of the most amazing set of women in the whole Bible who come up with this explanation. They say, The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, They are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Their explanation was, you Egyptians, you're weak and terrible uh, at at giving birth to babies. The Hebrews don't even blow, they don't even mess up pace. They just have the baby and keep going, and we can't even get there. And the best part about it is I think that Pharaoh actually believes her. That's that's the crazy thing. Uh, But uh, And you have to know a lot about New Kingdom Pharaohs. There was a lot of marrying sisters and brothers and stuff, and so they probably weren't that bright. Um, but uh, uh, the, there's this, this moment here where we lead that, and we go, we go, this is a world that has so turned against the, the Hebrews, against the sons of Israel, it has so turned against them, that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh is asking the midwife to slaughter the male children. Now you see, why kill the male children? Because then the females have to marry Egyptians. And by doing that, they become Egyptian, and... The, the Hebrews lose their identity. This is actually a very common thing in the ancient world. Um, you get rid of the men, you marry the women, and then that group of people ceases to exist. And out of all of this, right, there is all of this pain and suffering going on. And, 
and the people of Israel cry out to their God. And as I mentioned before, in chapter 2 and verse 25, during those many days the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This, by the way, does not mean that God forgot the covenant. It means that now was the time for it to come to fruition. And God saw the people of Israel and... God knew. I love that it just hangs there. And God knew. That's just the end of that verse. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we, as we come to the word of God? Father, as we explore these themes and these ideas, may your spirit speak to us. May he equip us to better understand the words of scripture written so many so many years ago by people so alien to us. And yet your spirit unites us with them to see your work, your grace, your mercy. May this time be a time of focus on you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with themes here that you can take to the Bible. So I'm not going to do a whole lot of, of more like direct quotation, but um, I want to deal with themes all through the Bible, this theme of exile and exodus. We talk about the, the, the main one. Uh, now, if you want a really technical word, you can talk about the late motif of exodus. Um, what is a late motif? It's a big word that means this is something that comes up again and again and again. All right? Um, it's actually a musical term, which I love, but that's beside the point. Um, this idea of the exi- this idea of God's people being exiled, being captive, being enslaved, being um, being controlled. This idea comes out all through the scriptures. I just want to give you a few examples of it. The big one is Israel and Egypt. We see this story. We know the story. We've heard this story. Israel is in Egypt. Their salvation under Joseph has become their slavery under Egypt. But then built into that, we have this wonderful literary thing that happens where Moses, like I mentioned before, Moses is born to be the savior of the people, but then he has to go into exile. Moses literally has to get out of Egypt so that Egypt can get out of Moses so that Moses can go back to Egypt and get Israel out of Egypt. Moses in Egypt, he's so influenced by Egypt, he doesn't even know the God he claims to be serving yet. God has to take him out into the wilderness. Moses' life is divided up in the scriptures into three 40-year parts. 40 years uh, in the house of Pharaoh, 40 years in the wilderness, and then 40, or 40 years as a shepherd, and then 40 years leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. Um, now, so he basically had three jobs his entire life and retired from all three of them um, at 40 years. Moses goes into exile, he comes back, but this is not the only place where this idea comes up. If you look in the book of 1 Samuel, or book of Ruth, you'll see that uh, there's a, a moment where uh, two people, who are actually David, the King David's great-grandparents, um, they go into, they leave their home in Bethlehem, in the hills of Bethlehem, and they go to Moab, uh, and, and while they're there, everybody but the mom dies, and she gets stuck with her daughters-in-law, and she comes back bemoaning her exile, and yet 
when she comes back, she comes back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who winds up being the salvation of her family. And I'm not going to get into the whole story, but it's a short book, the book of Ruth. It's worth reading. It's a tremendous love story. It's got humor in it. Um, it is, uh, it is, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. I've, I've taught through it several times. But then David, King David, who everybody knows, David and Goliath, you know, he's got the sling and he kills the giant and all this stuff. Everybody tells the story about David and the Goliath and killing the giant. No one happens to mention that later on in his life, David actually uses Goliath's sword as his own sword, which means that David was no little man himself. Um, David was probably a pretty massive guy. Um, He is not the little shepherd boy in the loincloth that shows up in family Bible pictures, um, but rather is probably a crazy red... All right, the best way to depict, remember David, is those crazy redhead berserkers in every movie, movie about Scotland. All right, that's, that's David. All right, he's a, he's a crazy man, and he does seem to be... The, the description of him, it seems to indicate he had red hair and he was uh, quite the... Um, quite the character, and he does carry around Goliath's sword, and so he is, in fact, the other Philistines, Goliath's family members, actually become his personal bodyguard. David is a, a very interesting character, um, uh, but David uh, sins with Bathsheba, he sins with a, a woman, he has adultery with a woman, kills her husband, and his punishment for it is that he will lose four of his sons, and one of the sons that he loses is a son named Absalom. Uh, Absalom is his favorite son. He loves Absalom, um, and Absalom knows he's the favorite son. And so Absalom, uh, he has long, flowing hair. He never ties it into braid in a ponytail. He, Absalom is, knows he's the favorite son, and he eventually manipulates the situation. He kills one of his half brothers. There's a whole story in there with the half brother and half sister, and I won't get into it. Um, kills one of his half brothers. David tries to reconcile with him. Absalom eventually tries to steal the kingdom from him. And so David, God's chosen and anointed king, has to go into exile from his own son. That's the book of 2 Samuel. Um, goes in exile from his own son until, and it's a convoluted thing, but then David's uncle, Joab, who serves as one of his generals, kills Absalom because his hair gets stuck in a tree. It just, it, it's in there. you just got to read it. Um, I'm telling you, the Bible is endlessly fascinating. Um, just crazy stuff that happens. Um, and, uh, but there's this exile with David. Um, there's, there's exiles all over the place. There's actually a, a theme of exile uh, in the book of Kings as the, king, as the kingdom of Israel splits into two sub-kingdoms and God's people are, are taken captive for a while um, before God eventually restores them. And the big uh, exile in the Bible is, happens in 603 and 586 B.C. Uh, when the city of Jerusalem is conquered by the Babylonians. And, and this is one of, the, one of the places in the Bible where we absolutely know exactly what happened from the Bible. And then also the, the Babylonians actually make a big deal about it. They actually record that they did this about how they conquered this city and they leveled it to the ground. And they took the people of Israel and they went and carried them off into Babylon. And then 70 years later, they're allowed to return. But they don't return to independence. They return and they continue in exile. And then there's this fascinating thing that the Gospel of Matthew does. Um, Matthew, uh, if if you're not familiar, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And... Uh, Matthew is the most Jewish one, John is the most Gentile one, and the other two are kind of in between. Um, But Matthew's gospel is the gospel of 
the king in exile. The book of Matthew, Jesus represents the king in exile. He is not in Jerusalem. He is not ruling as he should. In fact, he is born in Bethlehem, but then the, the, the king at the time, Herod, tries to kill him, and so his family flees to Egypt, mirroring uh, the people of Israel going to Egypt. Then he returns, to, returns, but they don't want to live close to Jerusalem, and so they move to Nazareth, which is in Galilee, and Galilee was called the Galilee of the nations. This is where all the uh, non-Jews lived. This is where they were. They, they lived up there by the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus lives his entire life in exile. He's in Galilee. He, he doesn't come to Jerusalem in the book of Matthew. He doesn't come to, the, to Jerusalem until uh, he is ready uh, to offer himself on the cross. This theme of exile runs all through the scriptures. We see it in the church. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you need to realize that although now you're, you're Jews, you're Torah observant Jews, you need to understand you're going to be thrown out of the synagogues. He says this in uh, multiple places. You're going to be thrown out of your Jewish communities. Your family is not going to want to put up with you. They're going to try to get rid of you because of what you believe. He said, because of me, uh, Jesus says this, because of me, you're literally going to be on the outside of society for your entire life. But for every exile, there is an exodus. There is God honoring His promises. God fulfilling His prophecy. For Israel, in Egypt, for centuries, they waited and they waited for a God. They could not remember His name. And they kept praying to a God they could not remember how to pray to, hoping that He would remember them. And we read here that He was waiting. Now there's a lot of dynamic going on in the Scriptures. The book of Genesis is very careful to explain why they have to wait so long. It has to do with the iniquity of a group called the Amorites. And there's an explanation. I don't want to get into that. But God knows. God saw, in verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. He was seeing he was watching. He knew. And when the time came, He fulfilled His promise. He honored the prophecy. Why do we go into exile? Wouldn't it be easier if God simply just did whatever He was going to do where we are already and save us the trouble? Why do we always have to go through this process and, and that's a question that a lot of people have, have wrestled with. But I would say that exile transforms us. It strips our delusions about who we are and how, we are, how important we are to prepare us for rebirth. To become the men and women that we need to be when God leads us out of Egypt. There's not nearly enough stripping down and, and drawing to the, to the bare bone in, in modern Christianity for us to be prepared for the tasks that we have in front of us. 
We, we like comfort. We like, we like ease. And, and we're not alone in that, by the way. The people of Israel led out, finally making the exodus out of Egypt. After centuries of slavery, God crosses the Red Sea. You know, Charlton Heston, red robe, hand, you know, crosses the Red Sea. They go across the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And as soon as they are hungry, oh, you know what? We should go back to Egypt. They had cucumbers and leeks and onions. And I mean, we, I mean yeah, we were slaves, but at least we got to eat, man. You know, I mean, and that's like, that's like, hey, I'm going to buy you dinner wherever you want to go. And somebody says, can we go to McDonald's? It's like, no, I said I'd buy you dinner, not indigestion. Um, you know, like, like this, this, this whole, uh, you know, God, God leads them in. God just parted the Red Sea. God's given them all this direction. He brought Moses back. And yet the first time that they get hungry, oh, man, it was so much easier. We could just serve God in Egypt. It would be so much better if God would just fix me where I am rather than take me out. Because often we don't realize we're in exile. Often we don't realize that God is trying to strip us uh, down. He's trying to expose the things that need to be fixed. I, I am not a woodworker. Um, I have been known to put a nail or screw into a piece of wood. It never works out the way that it does for some of my friends. I watch those videos on social media. I don't know. So, so I have this thing, right? On my social media, I just unfollow everybody um, because I, I, I really only want, I'm only on Facebook really to see pictures of my nieces and nephews. No offense to everybody else. Um, but, you know, that's really the only function of social media. Somehow online, social media became, well, I'm going to get lost. All right, just stay on focus. So um, because I don't follow, because I don't follow a lot of people, pretty much my entire social media feed is videos that Facebook and Twitter and everybody thinks I want to see. Um, and so I bought something on Harbor Freight one time, and as you know, once you do something, the internet knows. And so now my Facebook feed is filled entirely of people doing woodworking projects. And I sit there, this morning I watched a guy make a floating shelf with hidden storage in it, and I went, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, he crafted that thing, he's mitering the distance. He's doing, and it's one of these videos where, if any of you have ever started, you know, those of you that have, like, done woodworking, you know when you start, the first project never turns out the way it's supposed to be. Like, you find out all kinds of little things about 45 degrees is not necessarily 45 degrees, and you discover this amazing thing that you never realized, that lumber that comes from Home Depot is often not straight. All right, like little things like that, you have to, you, you learn those things. It's like, I build bookshelves. Well, did you plane them down and make sure they're flat? No, I bought them from Home Depot. I figured they'd be all set in shelves or, you know, I can't get it square. Well, that's not a surprise. That one's twisted almost 20 degrees. It's, you're not even going to get a book on there. Um, you know, the, all this stuff that's going on. Well, I'm watching these videos. And one of the things that I, I always notice about these craftsmen is, is the way that they are so careful to get rid of the imperfections that most of us would never notice. They, they, they take that wood. I remember the first time my friend Charlie was making a bookshelf for me and he was running boards through a, a planer. And I could not for the life of me figure out what on earth. The board went in one side and it came out the other side looked exactly the same. I did not understand what was happening. I did, I'm like, what are you doing? And he tried to explain it. He's like, look, he says, wood is a natural material. It has bumps. It has moves. It's, he says, so we, we plane it down so it's completely smooth. It's completely level so that when we build the bookshelf, and I'm like, that looks like so much work. I, I will let you do it. I'm going to go home. 
And the reality is that exile is about stripping down all of those bits and pieces that if, if, if we let them stay, they would mess up what we are. Um, just one other home improvement story for you, just to, to explain this. Uh, I am the master of not sanding things down properly before I repaint them. Yeah. So I'm bad at it. But whoever did the wall and the parsonage in the kitchen was worse at it than I am. We painted the wall. Now, when the wall was white, it was fine. When we painted it red, suddenly I realized that that guy apparently had never seen a page of drywall sand paper. Now, I don't know who did it. If it was Bob, I don't think it was you. You would not have left it the way that it was. All right, It probably happened before all of our time. But it looked like somebody just took a spackle, right, and they had to patch things and went, it's good, you know, as opposed to uh, Ron Jones, who, who is no longer with us. One time we were working on, we were working on a, a, another building and Ron is sitting there, he's smoothing out, he's, he's, he's checking the, he's doing the drywall thing and then he's going like this, he's going. I'm like, well, you are intense. I'm just going to leave you to do your thing, to call me when I need me to paint it. Um, you know, but God, God, when God is working on us because he's not building halfway, haphazard people, but the, the Apostle Paul actually calls us his poema, his poems, his songs, because he's crafting us to be things of excellence and beauty, because he wants to turn you into something extraordinary, he drags you through exile so that all the rough spots and all the knots and all the brokenness can be exposed and corrected so that when He leads us out, we are, and this is important, ready to begin the process of becoming who He has us to be. The exile is not the process of making us who He wants us to be. It's the preparation for us to become. Because the sons of Israel... Why did they take the Exodus? If you know the story, they Exodus out, they, they, they Exodus out, they exit out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and then they spend 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, wandering around in circles, literally. Why? Why didn't he just take them straight in? And Michael Card, who wrote the song uh, El Shaddai, yeah, he one time said, said to me, and he said this in books and stuff, it was so profound, he said, the wilderness is where God turns slaves into sons. And I, just, I was like, I'm never going to forget that. I've never written it down. I just, it's stored in my head. We go into exile, all the difficulty, and the motif of exile is about God taking his place, his people, and putting them in a place where they're going to get stripped down to everything, bare bones, then Exodus is about us coming out of that into the process of becoming sons and daughters. That's why when you became a Christian, God didn't just beam into your head all the things you needed to know. But rather, you grow and mature as a believer over time because we are walking through the wilderness to become the sons and daughters of God. This is where we learn to become the men and women that God wants us to be. You say, well, when does the process end? 
yay about the moment you take your last breath. It doesn't stop. None of us arrive. None of us are the perfected work of God. So often people are looking around for some hero that they can look at and go, look, the perfect Christian. We shall be like him. And it will be good. And then the reality is, that guy doesn't exist. Another pastor that I know one time, he said, if you think you're a super pastor, the best thing you can do is take that idea out behind the barn and shoot it. Because you have not arrived, and the second that you think you have arrived is the second you left. We're not looking for ideal, we're not trying to be perfect Christians. All we're doing is becoming the sons and daughters. The book of Romans says that all creation groans awaiting the adoptions of, adoption of the sons of God. That we are in the process of rising. But it won't happen not first exiled and then let out in the exodus to be the men and women, to become the men and women that we eventually will be. The, God, the Bible is filled with the exile, exile and exodus motif. And if you read the Bible the right way, you will understand that the exodus itself is not the end result. The end result is a people devoted to God. A people that God could call His own. And all through that process, this is the amazing thing, and I'll leave you with this, and we're going to participate in the Lord's table. Throughout that entire process, from the beginning, to the exile, to Egypt, to the exodus, to the wilderness, to becoming who we are, Exodus chapter, chapter 2 and verse 25. God saw and God knew. God is at work in you. Say, I don't feel like God is at work in me. In fact, I feel like I've got an Egyptian slave master smacking me all the time because I'm not making bricks fast enough. God is at work at you. So I don't feel like God is at work in me. God brought me all this freedom of being a believer and then there was more work involved. How do I feel like God is at work in me? God is at work in you. See, I don't feel like God is working me. Right now, my heart is broken. Right now, I'm struggling. God is at work in you. You say, I don't feel like God's at work. I'm pretty much all set. God is at work in you. Exile, exodus, wilderness, all a process of God bringing about His glory in our lives. And so, we're going to conclude our worship service by observing the Lord's table, remembering the work of Christ that makes all of this possible. The demonstration of God's grace upon us is that Christ lived among us, died, was raised again, that we might walk in newness of life. And we receive the elements of the Lord's table as believers as a memorial, a living memorial, a living truth that that Christ is present among us and doing the work that only He can do in us, for us, through us, by us. And so we take a moment to reflect, have a word of prayer. Then I'm going to invite you uh, to come and partake in the Lord's table. Um, uh, we are, we're missing one of our elders, so... 
Ray, could you help Doc on this side? Ray Berry. And let's see, I need to pick some people. So Jed and, uh, and Rick. Rick, can you help with the Lord's table this morning? Is that okay? So you guys, so uh, bread on the outside, juice in the middle, right? Does that make sense? So let's have a, let's have a moment of prayer. We're going to see how this works. <laughs> and, uh, and then after we're done, we'll start coming down the center aisles uh, to down the side aisles, receive the elements, go back up the center aisle, and then we're going to form a circle around the sanctuary. So don't go back to your seat. We're going to form a circle around the sanctuary. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we once again come together to receive the elements of the Lord's table, we ask only for your glory and honor. We're all at different places of exile, exodus, wilderness. Some are struggling, some are all the way through on the edge of the promised land. Regardless where we are, Lord, we ask that your Son be glorified in us. Those things that stand between us and Him, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of allowing those barriers to be in our way. Give us the power to get them out of the way so that we might devote more of ourselves to your calling and your vision. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, if you come.